As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is the big show, the draw, the money, the eye candy, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. And how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Today is Labor Day, as you know, in our corner of the world. And I would just like to say with complete sincerity and without any trace of irony, anybody who works for a living has my complete and full respect. As somebody who's never worked hard a day in his life, other than for you fine people, of course, it's So Very Wrong About Games, I have tremendous regard for anybody that draws a wage. It is a rough life out there for us, Marks, I have to say. Putting in those long, long hours, lugging those parcels, stocking those shelves. Yeah. Keeping commercialism alive. Oh, yeah. Especially in these times. <laughs> I think, if anything, I, these times of pandemic should show us that if you're essential, you should probably be treated well. But anyway, leaving talk of politics and economics at the door, we're going to be talking about board games, which, of course, have nothing to do with either politics or economics at all whatsoever. Ever. We're going to have our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, our topic this week is going to be six-plus-player games, which for me is mostly nostalgia and looking forward. We, we haven't been talking about the pandemic much lately. I'm going back, Mark. I, I was going to send you a message. This is just not right. You say six-player games or six-plus-player games. It's not right. Anyway, moving on. Your message specifically said six-player games. There's no plus in there, but we'll just let it go. Moving along. Moving along to our as-yet-unnamed <laughs> retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. Walker, what did we talk about last year? Last year we talked about the Norwegians, a Feast for Odin expansion. And I think I would had the choice I would always play with this expansion. It adds so much more to the game. It makes those spaces that much more locked down and steely from the other players. How's that for, you know, enunciating my thoughts? Steely Dan? Steely Dan. If anything, the thing I like most about the expansion is what it takes away, namely some of those action spaces, so it increases the competition. And I have to say, I've played A Feast for Odin several times since we reviewed it. It's one of our favorite worker placement games. And I'm very much looking forward to what's coming down the pike because I keep seeing uh, development updates and diaries from the people who are working on the Danes, which is going to be the next big expansion to Feast for Odin, and all the things they're planning going forward. That Really, the intent is for a Feast for Odin to be basically covering everything in the history of all the Viking peoples. 
And honestly, a lot of it looks very ambitious. I don't know if it, some of that I don't even know if it can be accommodated within the context of Feast Roden. But then again, we're already talking about a game that allows you to trade with the English, steal their crown, settle Newfoundland, <laughs> whale. <laughs> so I guess they can do anything. It is credited as, as uh, Gernot Kupke and Uwe, That's right. Uwe Rosenberg. Yeah, so, and he always puts out great stuff. So, always stuff to look forward to. Well, the expansion material seems to be spearheaded by people not Weir Rosenberg, but he is involved, and yes, you're right, he does put out reliably good things, even when he is, as he tends to do, putting out a game and then putting out seven other games that are basically the same game, but just various subdivisions of it. So, the games we played last week, Walker, what did you play last week? You and I got to play a game called Time of Legends, Joan of Arc. It's from Mythic Games, put out by Pascal Bernard. He also put out, he has, I think he has a fascination with Joan of Arc, because he put out another game called Joan of Arc back in 1998 by Clash of Games. But anyway, let's just talk about Time of Legends version. It is like a little sort of miniature skirmish type game. I love the scale. It is nice and small. Looks great on the table. It does a great job with incorporating scenarios. We only got to play one, but I can see where this action system, because it has all sorts of different action cubes. I can see where they're going with this and the fact that it's going to bring up all sorts of interesting ways to manipulate those in the coming scenarios. So I'm looking forward to playing more. The only thing I'm worried about so far is it seems awful quick. I think they're looking for this quick, fast battling system. And I'm wondering if the setup and the organization is just too much for how quick it takes to play. Well, again, only having played the intro scenario, it's tough to tell what the later scenarios are going to be. Here's the thing about Time of Legends. So it, it's not really skirmish scale. It's more like battle lore scale, slightly more operational in nature, although definitely not on a, on a strategic level. So you're commanding units of troops rather than individual figures. So there are heroes and then the troops that they command. And you're right, the system is very neat. I like the War Council cards at the top of every round. Players can choose from a set of bonuses, which can either be better commands or more resources, more special cards, things like that. And... It's relatively straightforward. We had a couple of minor rules niggles, but that tend to be common with these things, especially since 80% of rules overlap, but you have to be very, very careful about those minor areas of, of asymmetry. Which is odd for Mythic, right? They usually have their rules on lockdown. Yeah, see, that, that, that's the thing. Here, here, here's the deal. I've been thinking a lot about this because I w I've been responding, at least in my head, to a podcast put out by Roby Jenkins, who's a uh, tabletop miniatures game designer, who had some slightly disparaging remarks about miniatures board games in one of his episodes, which should be understood. He's a tabletop war gamer, and so he looks at miniatures board games and he asks the question, why bother? And to, to my mind, the answer of why bother is you tend to have self-contained experiences that don't start to become hobbies unto themselves. You don't have to spend all the time and all the effort. And part of that is painting and collecting and, and assembly. But part of that is also chasing down rules documents, consolidating errata, keeping up to date with the meta, etc., etc., etc. And I, I started asking myself, after we played the game, I'm like, oh, that was fun. That was cool. Yeah, there was a 1.5 that came out. What's, what's going on here? So I started chasing down documents. And you start going down a rabbit hole. And I remember this very particularly, very, very, very specifically, not just in terms of other miniatures games that I played, not even in terms of other tabletop miniatures games that I played, in terms of other Mythic games that I played, because I remembered this. The last time I did this was Mythic Battles Pantheon, when Mythic Battles Pantheon released 1.5, and in the interim period, there were going to be updated cards, and we're going to fix all of the blah, 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 blah. And I started to ask myself, how much bandwidth do I have for this? Any game that we play has to compete for table time, obviously. That's that's problematic enough, given the rate of churn and the state of the hobby. But to compete with the mental bandwidth of keeping up to date with all this stuff, 
Is a board game worth it? Maybe. Sometimes. Almost possibly. But at the expense of what else? And I started thinking, would I rather play Mythic Battles Pantheon again, having gone to the effort of getting the 1.5 upgrade, of consolidating those materials, of organizing everything so that it was just right? Or do I want to keep going down with Time of Legends Joan of Arc? Well, to a, to a large extent, that's a personal question. But in terms of mechanical novelty, I think that Mythic Battles Pantheon has the edge. Now, they're very different games. It's In many ways, it's a, it's a disservice to compare them. They're different in terms of scale and in terms of a lot of other conventions. But suffice to say... Mythic Games has taken me on this merry chase once before. And on top of this, there's this, there's this entire notion of what's the quote unquote correct way to play. Because there's the possibility of scenarios being uneven in terms of quality. And then there's also, apparently, within the community, there's a solid disagreement about whether you should even play the scenarios or should, whether you should play battle mode. What's battle mode, you ask? Oh, well, battle mode is the system that exists only online, where all, the documentation only exists there. And they have rebalanced cards specifically for battle mode. Good lord. Yeah. So then I start wondering, why am I doing this instead of playing Battle or Second Edition? Because at that point, they're very much like, they're, they're, they're practically identical in terms of scope, in terms of scale, in terms of fundamental outlook of how to run the game. And so we're, we're left with a situation where, where Joan of Arc is, is really cool visually. It's very compelling. The miniatures are lovely. And you're right. The scale is very visually appealing and the plastic terrain is gorgeous. And, and, and all these historical figures are kind of neat. Although I'm not a huge fan of, of the sort of Ukrania, like almost sort of hundred years war, but not really. Eh. I'm not a huge fan of, you know, dragons and wizards and stuff like that, but all things being equal, I don't find the slightly historical, but not quite approach to my taste. Is it worth the effort? I'm not, a whole, I'm not entirely sure. If you're optimistic, absolutely. We should get it to the table again, maybe once, uh, tw- once more, twice more. And then maybe we might want to say, eh, maybe we should play Mythic Battles Pantheon again. Maybe we should pull up Battle Lore more often because we, those are tried and true systems that are now, at least in one case, have already sunk the effort into it. And in another case, was solid to begin with. So I want to try at least once, right? Because I had this, the one system that we didn't get to try where you get to question the civilians and stuff and you, and yes. you have these whole you're right you know sort of conversation cards that you get to you know hit each other back and forth i always want to see how that mechanism works and it would be interesting to see anyway that is legit so we will explore it further when given the opportunity i just want to note finally that this was the one that won an audience poll as to what game full of plastic we should try because i've got a bit of a backlog in terms of games full of plastic that i that i wanted to play Agents of Mayhem, Arena of the Contest, a couple of other things, and I, I just put it up on a poll for our patrons. What, what, what should we play next? This one, hands down. People wanted to know about Time of Legends, Joan of Arc. That's our initial impressions. Good. Is it good enough? Well, time will tell. Time will tell. We'll see. I just want to say, Mythic Games, get your act together. Come on, guys. I, I don't even know what to say. It's like sort of like Kickstarter. Got to get it out. You know, you have your backers hounding you. You want to? I think they just need. I don't know. Some companies do it better, man. They do. I just need to get it's too commercial. They need the money. That's sometimes I think it comes down to possibly pride in your work. Sure. I all that I know is that for every excuse that people give, and there are legitimate excuses, it's a large system with many moving parts, and you have to worry about lots of different effects and interactions. And you're working on a timetable, and the demands of money, small company, blah 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 blah. Every game company is working under those same constraints. If you're not Games Workshop, you're a small struggling enterprise. So I, I, I'm finding these excuses to ring a little bit hollow. It's just so odd, like when you play the game for the first time and these problems come up. It's like, I, do they just play test these in the bubbles, or you know how? how? To, to be fair, to be entirely fair, we did not encounter any problems running the 1.0 rules with just the stuff out of the box. The only thing that was strange, and this is just a weird interface with Kickstarter exclusives, the base game first scenario 
relied on components that were shipped in the Kickstarter bonus box, which is a strange choice, especially when you know that you're already con- having to work between seven different decks of cards for your first game. So they could have spent a little bit of time thinking about usability for your first game. But past that, like I say, I- I'm not sure how many of these changes are serious problems, but the moment you put out new editions of anything you got to play with the newest stuff. Otherwise, right. why are you wasting your time? Exactly. <laughs> and that is Time of Legends, Joan of Arc by Mythic Games. Got to explore more of Spirit Island, Jagged Earth. I am absolutely loving being able to re-explore all these new spirits. I got to play Many Minds Move as One, which is basically a swarm-based spirit that uses beasts in a very different way from Sharp Fang's behind the leaves. Instead of using it to kill things, you use beasts to move and put things on lockdown. So it generates lots of fear, generates lots of defense rather than strict offense. And it was really cool to be able to play with a solid movement-based power in a way that was very different from, say, Thunderspeaker or Sharp Fangs. And it really goes to show how much flexibility there is within the Spirit Island system and the variety with the spirits. Anyway, continued experience with Spirit Island Jagged Earth. Absolutely wonderful. There's now a mere, say, 12 or so spirits left for me to try. That's our continued experiences with Spirit Island Jagged Earth. So there's designers, Mark, that can boil things down to their mere perfection. Vitalisarda, right? Uh, no. We've played two games that fit this quota perfectly. One is My City. There's not much more we can say about it. It is still living up to its potential, I think. Some of the scenarios, you know, the the extra bits are sort of, you know, ah, now you can only use this side of the map instead of this side of the map. Kind of weak. The, it's, the, it's the butter, Mark. It's the butter. <laughs> okay? Both of these games I'm going to talk about, right? You have your, like, really mean. Like, we talked about uh, Feast for Odin, you know, these complicated, weird games. But if you just want to, like, sit down with your friends in, for an afternoon... We've talked about it with the crew. My City and Thor also fit into these things. It's just a fantastic, pure game that you just you can sit back and just enjoy it, right? There's no fiddly little bits. There's no worrying about anything. It's just a system that works really well and is fun to play. Anyway, back to Thor. So Thor is a revised edition of Wildlife Safari, also known as Loco or Finkel Pinkle. Uh, or or Quandry or, or Botswana. Because Knizia doesn't release a game once, he releases it seven times. So it's really hard to explain this game, but I'm going to do my best. The thing on BGG does a pretty good job. There are six, six values for each stock. And then once all of those cards are placed, played for one of the stocks, then the game is over. And the last card played for each of the stocks is the value that that stock is going to be. And then when it's your turn, you play one of these values and you take any of the stocks and then... I don't know if that was a good enough explanation of how it works, but anyway, you tally your score. It's so simple and so elegant. Thor by Reiner Knizia. It's one of those things where, and a lot of Knizia games are like this, but a lot of other Euro games are like this too. You start wondering about what to do with your hand because in most player configurations of Thor or Loco, Loco was the first version that I played. It was the uh, the, the Fantasy Flight version put out in 2003, I think. You start looking at your hand and say, oh, I've got the five of this god in this case. That means that I'll be able to make it really valuable. I should start taking taking lots of instances of this god. Thor is going to be red hot. Thor is going to be worth five. And it's like, wait a minute. The fives of all the gods are out. Everyone everyone has the fives. The fact that I've got it doesn't really, it just means I control the timing of it. Oh, wait, now I have to worry about everything else. And so you start going through these spirals of... of, of Kind of concern, not worry, but just realizing that it's that you, the value of your hand is all about timing, 
And the certainty of when the game is going to end is completely out the window. You don't know when, when a hand's going to go away. And you start worrying, it's like, okay, well, I've got the four of the Odin and the five of the Thor, everything's fine. But you're like, wait a minute, I don't have time to play all these cards. The round's going to end in, oh no, I took it for granted. Oh no, why That's did right. I do this? Right, and the zero's not out yet, you know, but is there going to be time? And you say, okay, there's no way it's going to exactly. end in the round. I'm going to put it to five and then... So your, le- your level of control over any given god's value is relatively low, but you have to float on uh, trying to understand what other players are going to do and when the evolving values of these stocks, because a lot of people look at, at Loco and Thor and all the other versions and say, well, you know, it's completely arbitrary. You can go from zero to five or five to zero in the context of a single card play. That is absolutely true, but you have a basis to understand why someone might be inclined to do that and when. And the game recommends, and this is probably what we should have been doing from the start, you play several rounds in succession and you tally your score. Because it's so quick, and that was one of the the, the things that I'd completely forgotten. A round can end just on its head. And you have to be careful about the value of these things. Yeah, so Thor, Thor is a triumph. I, I like the Thor version. It's got Friends, Vowinkle Art, which I really like. The other, A lot of the other versions are really nice. I've seen the Quandary version with very thick tiles, which is kind of cool on an unnecessary board, but then you turn what should be a game that fits into your pocket into a full-size Milton Bradley game. Apparently Eagle Griffin has the rights now, and they're producing a Wildlife Safari version. It doesn't matter what version you have. They're all great. Proxy the, a copy. The, the Thor one goes up to six players, though, where the other ones only did five. That is true. You're right. It, and it, it also has those funky action cards. Which we did not try. We, did, we didn't try, but Thor has. The others do not. And that is Thor by someone called Reiner Knizia. I think it's his first project. Played another game of For What Remains. This is a review copy I got from DVG Games. This is Dave Thompson's skirmish game. I talked about it last week, and I there's something about it that's just really, really, really engaging, especially when playing solo. I talked about how good the AI was last week, and I really have to double down on how smooth and and pleasant it is because it works on this very simple order system where a unit is going to go and do something until it's time for it to get a new order so you're not constantly checking what a unit's going to do but nor are they entirely mindless and they all at the start of the scenario say oh they just advance and attack as as best as possible and on top of this it's really really well suited to chip pull systems there's a reason why chip pull activation systems where you randomize all the units that are going to activate and you pull one out kind of like cosmic frog are so favored amongst wargamers who play solo because it's a great way to introduce fog of war and uncertainty and make it so that every activation is a little bit tense because you don't know what's going to be coming up next. And on top of that is the fact that a given activation for a unit in For What Remains is very, very minimalistic. It You don't have a lot of units that can move and attack when they activate. Usually they either move or they attack, and that is it. And normally that might lead to a very stodgy pace in a game where it was simply, I activate all my units, you activate all your units every round. But because there's a chit pull activation system, you can look at your skirmisher and say, oh, well, you need to activate three times this round. Close, close, attack. That's what you're doing. And it's just really, really fun as a consequence. I still have a little bit of concerns about the total level of unit variety. I, I somehow feel that I've been suckered. Having been given a review copy of one of the three core boxes, now I think this is sort of a lost leader where I'm going to be compelled to go chase down the other two boxes so I have access to all six factions and the other two campaign systems. So this is some sort of weird marketing scheme. I wonder if, if David Thompson's getting kickbacks on the back end. This is some sort of pyramid idea. Multi-level marketing. I will be filing a class action against David in no, in no time, I have no doubt. But I'm going to probably finish the campaign. I'm, I'm three scenarios into a five-scenario campaign. And then, you know, if I can't find the other two boxes, I'm probably just going to change sides. Because, again, the scenario systems add little tweaks to the AI, AI system. The scenario will say, look, 
uh, here's the placeholder for the scenario objective. And every scenario will say, this is what the AI objective is in the context of the scenario objective. And that really helps to provide a little bit of variety in terms of what the AI bots are going to do while not straining further upkeep. I haven't played it face-to-face yet. I am kind of curious. My, my enthusiasm for skirmish systems is more, is more or less boundless. And I really like the chitpull activation system and the sort of Thompsonian roll XD10. If any of them exceed the target value, you inflict one hit and no more than one hit is shockingly flexible. <laughs> I've now seen applied to no fewer than four different games of different size, scale, and scope with great success. At any rate, I'm enjoying For What Remains. And I am looking forward to trying other factions if I ever get a chance, a chance to get a hold of them. And, so that, and that is for what remains. All right. So I was back on Board Game Arena and played a very interesting game called Small Islands by Alexis Allard and Mushroom Games. Now, this is a Carcassonne-type game. And anyone who plays Carcassonne properly is you draw your tile at the end of your turn so you're ready for your next turn, even though the rules say wait till it's your turn to draw your tile and hold, Properly. And hold the game up while, you know, you decide. <laughs> okay, well, that part isn't in the rules, but. <laughs> so anyway, this one sort of solves that problem because you have, you, you already have two tiles in your library. And when it's your turn, you're going to draft yet another one from a pool. So you have like a bunch to choose from. So you know what you're doing. And these tiles you're going to create these very, the art's really nice. You're creating these little islands and, and oceans. And there's all these symbols on these tiles. There's lotuses and temples and fruit. And at the beginning of the game, you are given these objectives. Like you have to, your island has to have more lotuses than fruit, or it has to have at least one temple and two lotuses, right? In order for you to put these houses on. And then you're going to score points, you know, accordingly, like every lotus gives you a point anyway. So at first it was beginning to be a fantastic little game. And then it went on and on and on and on and became very painful to play. It was just a game that took too long. Other than that, it was fantastic. Cool objectives, really nice tile placement, uh, sort of like, because, because at, at the end of every round, like once it went around, then you know, uh, you had a chance to place out your houses if you, you know, met the objectives and then you'd score your points and you'd have to draw a new one. So you sort of could plan ahead for your next objective. Even if you didn't get the right tiles, you could say, okay, well, my next card, I know because you have a little back pools. Okay. Well, I'm going to need this for my next objective. So you start building another island over here so you can get sort of ready, but then just kept going on and on. So anyway, long story short, maybe. If we played a little bit differently, it might be better. There's an advanced version, so maybe I'll give that a try. Small Islands by Mushroom Games. I feel the only way to ruin Kakasan similarly is when it takes too long, which you absolutely can do if you play with too many players and or too many expansions. But I agree with you. I haven't tried Small Islands, but tiling is fundamentally pleasant until the moment when it's not. <laughs> and some, exactly. some tiling games just run out of their welcome. And... Exactly. Finally, we played Iwari Deluxe Edition. We got our copies in from the Kickstarter. This is one of the last games that we both pledged for. I've been playing Iwari for 20 years under various names. Walker, what did you think of Iwari? This is a game by Michael Schacht, Thundergriff Games. I'm going to talk about the artist because the art in this game is off the charts. His name is Matthew Mazayek. And it's just like an air majority. You're putting tents down and you're putting these cool totems and there's like two different levels of scoring and just overall, I think it's a great little game. Like, we played in a gaming night, which sometimes we usually only play one game. We played two games of Warrior and then several games of Thor. Yes. But anyway, the fact that we played a game 
with the weight of Awari twice is something to say. It, it just plays really nicely. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of decision space on every turn. You're trying to make the most out of your cards. You have these three cards and it's not just what you're doing on this turn. You're also planning ahead. You're also looking at the board. You're looking at the pool of cards that's available to you at the end of the turn. And it just has so much going for it. I can't wait to play. There's like, uh, because it's a Kickstarter, of course, there has to be all sorts of stuff. So there's different boards you can play on. There's a solo mode that I'm going to look into because it doesn't look so, so complicated. And I'm just looking forward to playing more of Awari. I've had a lot of things to say about Han, which is the previous iteration of this game system. And I've talked about how it's one of my favorite area majority games, which is a style of game I very, very much enjoy. Nothing can really touch El Grande for me, but I definitely think that Web of Power slash China slash Han slash Iwari definitely comes close. So I'll just focus on the adaptation that Thundergriff did of, of Iwari. I agree with you that the art is nice. I have to say, though, of the four different ways that I've played this game, I found this to be the least functional and not by a small margin. So a lot of people have talked about the difficulty in discerning the yellow and orange totems. We did not play with both yellow and orange, and I don't think anyone should. Well, I, it's it's off. It really is. And I, I thought it wouldn't be a problem. With just the fact that you just wouldn't play with one. Right. But then I, re then what, as soon as we, like literally the second turn in, I realized that not only are there the player colors, but the player colors also reflect, uh, the territories on the map. Well, they use the same color palettes, kind of, sort of. Yes. They don't correspond with the areas on the map. No. But this is one of those things where, you know, you hear complaints on the internet and 95% of the time they're overblown. And 93% of the time, their sleevers complain, they're complaining that the insert doesn't fit sleeve cards, which, you know, I, they're to be pitied more than punished. I feel sorry for, for people of that oppressed religious minority. But it's, anyway. It's too bad. But, you know, you hear complaints about color matching all the time and uh, legitimate complaints from people who are colorblind. It's just that doesn't apply to us. We don't game with anyone who's colorblind. So I'm not saying it's not an important issue. I'm just saying it's not an important issue for us viscerally. It's intellectually, it's an important issue, yes. but it, it doesn't touch us experientially. But this is one of those cases where I saw the screenshots and I'm like, it can't be that bad in person, can it? Oh, it's that bad in person. It's awful. It's completely unforgivable. And as you say... The board color problems are the same. We were three or four turns into our first game when we realized that Louis had played into the wrong territory because he had played, he had mismatched the orange and the yellow on the cards and on the board and nobody noticed because it was kind of close. Then when doing scoring, I had trouble identifying a settlement because I thought areas were connected that weren't. And there was another instance of vice versa. There was an instance of a province having a, a an extra space that nobody noticed until the, near the end of the game. Uh, look, it's very pretty, but I, I have to say that this is the least functional version of the system that I've seen. And that's kind of unfortunate when this much effort has gone, gone into it. True, but I'm going to lean more towards that's the graphic design rather than the art. Sure. Right? Wh whoever's to blame. I'm what, what? saying the actual the actual physical pictures are amazing. Fair enough. And the Fair graphic enough. design, the color palette choice was wrong. And then I just, oh, yes. And I had the same problem when I did the unboxing. It was like I looked down and I saw the yellow and the orange. And a lot of the pieces have little antlers or little wings sticking off them. The orange ones don't and the yellow ones do. So I thought they were just two different pieces of yellow. Oh, I thought wow. they were just alternate things. And I looked down and I saw... The red, and I said, oh, how could they mix up yellow and red? They're, they're totally different. And then it was like a double take. It was like, no, that's orange. And I couldn't even tell the difference between them. It's, it's, it's really bad. And on the one hand, it seems churlish to spend this much time on component problems, especially when, again, the overall visual impact is considerable. But on the other hand, 
for five years, there's been a $20 version of this game called Han that didn't have any of these issues. <laughs> and now there's this incredible deluxe edition, the big box with all kinds of components that is now less usable. It's not unusable. Let's not exaggerate. It's completely playable. We played it twice. It's great. It's a marvelous system. They haven't messed up the fundamentals. We haven't tried the, some of the additional modules. There are feats. There are other weirdnesses that we're gonna that we're probably gonna give a try. I tried the solo version. Didn't really like it because it was it felt more like a tactical puzzle than it felt like playing Web of Power. Yeah, it definitely so, sounded that way. Right? Yeah, it's very very different. The hand management is completely altered. You're incentivized to dump your entire hand every round for a variety of reasons. Anyway, which is fine. Like, look, making a solo version out of this game is not easy. It just wasn't in my taste. Yeah, and I don't want to beat the color thing again, but like you said. We're just talking about because they were already asked to change it. They already had made the stake, mistake before. Yes. And they saw it happening again. They said, please don't do this. And they just went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah. So this, this I have to say is on the one hand, yay Kickstarter for once again, giving us a new edition of a fabulous game, keeping it in print because Han was not readily available in North America. On the other hand, this is an example of what happens when form over function is considered and when Kickstarter would small companies perhaps bite off more than they can chew or perhaps not as responsive as the format ought to be. So do I recommend the game? Sure. It's a great game. I love it. I would recommend the other versions more. Those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Doom Rock! Doom Rock. Ooh. Remember I said a few weeks ago yeah, you said they weren't going to do an English edition. There 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 had been statements that there was no that there were no plans. And see you say I don't listen, Mark. See, I listen to everything you say. I do not believe that is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I can report with great pleasure that there's been an announcement on Board King Geek that from Tom Stasiak, the director and runner of uh, Beautiful Disaster Games that put out Doom Rock that he is now really inspired by some of the work he did on the third Polish edition and by a lot of the feedback and enthusiasm from a lot of Doom Rock fans that he is now uh, strongly considering, it's not guaranteed yet, a Assault on Doom Rock Ultimate version that involves new material, reworks old material, and re-implicates some of the expansion material from Doompocalypse. Because I think I'm the only person on Earth who really likes the terrain system in Doompocalypse. Uh, most people seem to think that it's overwrought. I agree that it is uh, perhaps on the more fiddly side than it needs to be, but I very much like it. Anyway, Assault on Doomrock is one of my favorite adventure tactical combat type things, and the core of the combat system is just so brilliant. And this is all very, very much in the future. Tom Stasiak said this is the kind of thing that maybe I might work on for about a year and then maybe put a Kickstarter and then maybe a year after that you might have some things that we're talking about a couple years out at least if it happens. But I, for one, am super enthusiastic. If you too are enthusiastic, I encourage you to go on BoardGameGeek and tell Tom Stasiak that he's a genius because he is. Next bit of news is not nearly so important. As a joke when making fun of Roland Wrights, I said that it was inevitable that Roland Wrights would make Roar and Wrights. And as part of this joke, I showed a picture of a connect the dots drawing of a dinosaur. And I said, this is a, a picture of the score sheet of the inevitable Roar and Wright. Well, there's going to be a Roar and Wright. Look what you did. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is not my fault. It is your fault. No, 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 no. When you said Zombabees, you, you were the one who summoned all those B-related games. But when I said the Roar and Wright, that was satire. Satire is protected under fair use. You cannot blame me for this. Dinosaur Island Roar and Wright from Pandasaurus Games. It, I suppose it was inevitable. My bit of news, my one and only, is I love Neosham Hex. I go on and on about it. They've got a big thing coming up. It's called the Year of the Moloch. So they're bringing out yet another army called the Troglites, And they're putting out a new edition 
of Neo Shima Hex. Fourth edition? No, it's just it's still going to be 3.0, but it's okay. going to be a limited release. It's going to be in a bigger box. It's going to be way too expensive, Mark. For those people who already own it, it comes with a bunch of stuff that I just don't really care about. It has like this bust that I don't know what you're supposed to do with it. Maybe it's a first player marker that you don't really need. It also has, it's the, uh, reprints the, f- the four initial armies with new art. It has an art book. So it's like, there's no option not to get any of these things. So it's a hundred dollars mm. for this. But what it does have is a bigger box, which it claims will hold 16 armies. Okay. It has a double layered player board. So it'd be interesting if you could like sort of slot in the hexes, so they don't move around. I am weak for the double layered player I board. Know, not that it's ever been a problem. I've never remembered there being a problem with hexes sliding around or, you know, moving. Yeah, you, I don't you, remember you that have ever. a three tile hand. It's not a big deal. No, I mean, like once you start building the map, then moving around. It's like, yeah. It's oh, hard. it's not a double layer player board. It's a no. double layer game. Board. Double aired game board. Oh, that that's cool. That's hot, right? Okay, but the only thing is the selling point for me is going to be if they actually show me the box. I want the 16 armies to fit in there still in their original boxes. Absolutely. Or else it's just like a straight up no-go for me. Because all this time I've been saving the boxes. I even had a couple of projects started where I've uh made the original five boxes, so then you know, they, you know, I can present them all to the players. It'd all be nice. Uniform. They are nice boxes. Yeah. So I'm hoping that, uh, with the dimensions, it doesn't seem like it will work because uh. it says it's going to be 10 centimeters high. And I measured the boxes. They're almost exactly 10 centimeters high. So technically, if it was just the boxes would fit, but then no rule books or game boards would be able to fit right. on top. I don't know, but we'll see. I'm not going to go too much into it, but it, I really want the boxes to fit inside just because it would look really nice. Sorry, looks like it's not going to happen. That's what they've been doing with Battlecon, right? That in the latest edition of we're going to redo everything just right, every fighter is now going to be in an identical box going back from the original series. So every fighter looks the same. You can present somebody with like a character select screen. And that's really hard to do. And you have to engineer your boxes and your expansion material very, very carefully. But if you put in the effort and you put in the time, it can turn out something really, really impressive. Yeah, and the fact that it's got like an updated rule book and FAQs, these are all things I want. All of the other stuff. Oh yes, and they have plastic scoring markers for every for every army. Oh, of course they're, they do. They're putting out new ones though. So after this comes out, then are the oh, new army uh, boxes? Oh no! Are the new oh. army boxes going to come with plastic scoring markers? Why do they do this to themselves? Yeah, exactly. Because now they're going to have this limited limited relation thing, and then it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because you either don't offer the plastic markers, in which case the completionists talk about how they only have some plastic markers and not all, and the people who never got the limited edition box in the first place are going to have some plastic markers, but not the vast ones. Well, I just thought of something in my head, though, right? If it fits 16, that's good. they have 14 out now, so the, including this new one, it will be 14 total. So it can only fit two more armies, so technically they could just put two random symbols on scoring markers and then just incorporate those symbols into sure. the two new armies, right? Problem solved. But anyway... <laughs> I digress. Let's move on. Finally, I have a, a, a bit of a quandary isn't the right word, but every once in a while an issue comes up and I really don't know what to make of it. Uh, so there's this publisher, this designer who goes by the pseudonym Brother Ming, and he's put out a whole bunch of fan projects that are adapted from video games and anime that he really enjoys. So he's done a Persona 5 card game. He's done a Code Geass, I think that's how it's pronounced, game. He's done some other adaptations from other works. And his big project for a few years has been a kind of a Fire Emblem board game. 
that he's been calling Anna's Roundtable. And it's a very, very impressive project, in part because there's been, there are almost 200 cards with different characters, each of which is a commissioned piece of fan art that is fully rendered of a character in the Fire Emblem universe. And so this is no small feat. This is, this is not like we ripped game assets and we just pla- uh, plastered on top of things. And Fire Emblem is a kind of skirmishy thing. And as I've just said, I have endless enthusiasm for kind of skirmishy thing. Here's the thing, though. I don't think he's gotten permission from anybody to do any of this. Offering it up on your website as a print and play is one thing. Maybe they're going to send you a C&D order. Maybe not. Uh, but he's been charging for this stuff for quite some time. And now he's soliciting pre-orders for the printed edition of Anna's Roundtable. And all the character names are the same. All the character likenesses are the same from a long-running series of video games. On the one hand, I think this is an interesting kind of project. On the other hand, there's a non-zero possibility that people who are pre-ordering this product are going to end up with nothing. Because there is some possibility, let's be frank, there's some possibility that he collects the money, and I'm assuming good faith on everyone's part here, right? Because timing is everything. If the timing is he collects the money, he produces all the games, and so he's out of pocket, Nintendo then shows up and says, no, 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 this isn't happening, we won't let you deliver any of this, he's not going to be in a position to give people back their money, certainly not all of it, because he's going to be out of pocket. And then nobody's happy. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting bit of design work uh, insofar as his attempts to adapt some of the conventions of Fire Emblem to a tabletop skirmishy type thing. And I think some of it's very impressive. If I weren't so scared about the IP implications, both from a practical sense of maybe losing my money and from a moral sense of adapting people's works and taking the likenesses of, of these commercial characters without permission, I might even pre-order the game. As it is, I'm not going to. I'm very curious about his design work, and I've, I've been looking through a lot of his print-and-play projects, and it seems very cool, and he's clearly a very talented graphic designer, if nothing else, because he's very good at taking other people people's art assets and making very good-looking cards out of it. So I'm not, I'm not, as I say, as I just want to repeat what I said at the beginning, I'm not sure what to make of all of this. It's just interesting, and I've just been, I'll, I'll be following what happens, and I hope people get what, what they want. I Obviously, in an ideal scenario... Nintendo would descend from the, from the heavens, and the plumber himself would anoint Brother Ming and say, I give thee blessing, go forth and sin no more, and everyone gets to be happy. Yeah, little green pipes will pop out everywhere around the world. Yes. And little Fire Emblem games will appear on everyone's table. Absolutely. And kumbaya, the world is a better place. Precisely. How likely do you think that is? <laughs> it, anyway, so that is my update about Anna's Roundtable. I will be following it. I am very curious. And that is the news. And why it doesn't matter. I would now like to settle, in real time, a perhaps minor controversy that Walker alluded to at the top of the episode. Walker, would you care to read read the text that you sent to me? Yeah, it says, uh, six games, you're a better player than I am. So he's plus players, no. that means you're better players at games than than you are. That's what you meant to say. Nice try! The topic this week is best <laughs> games for six plus players. And I just want to flag again. We have not been talking about the fact that the world is suffering under a global pandemic for a long time. And we realize that we are very, very blessed. But even we are not in a position to get together with large quantities of people and play these games. So this is mostly an in memoriam section as far as I'm concerned. True enough. <laughs> Thinking about those aspects of our collections and of our, of our gaming hobby that we have not been able to experience and probably won't be for quite some time. Please, everyone, stay safe. But anyway, it's a it's a tricky design challenge, right? It's a tricky space in many cases. Those games that are really, really good and let you accommodate many, many players. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. I just 
I, I think this is going to be really short, though, because I don't think you should play any games with six, six players. That's really? Many. No, I'm just... <laughs> well, we no, talk... no, no, it's not. No, I'm, I'm just being... Okay, you're just... just being, okay, okay, okay. I'm just being funny. There's, like, the party games, more the merrier. But anyway, this is the two... The three topics we decided to break it down into is uh, party games, games you say, hey, we're going to play a game today, as in all day. Yep. And other. Yes. And I think... In this topic of weather, I think it caps at six. Like you go beyond six, and I disagree. You really think there's? It's hard. It's tricky. Most of most of the games that I think are really good in the other other category are are topping out at six. But I I yeah, like. But a I lot mean, of... it, it gets it gets really dicey after six. It it's true. It's hard, but it's an interesting design challenge, and so I find it all the more fascinating when games manage to do it well. All right, let's talk about. That's why I have a few things. What are these design challenges? Why is it difficult to get games with lots of players? Well, it's downtime. You know, the time it takes for you, you take your turn and now you have to wait for five to six other players to take their turn and you're sitting there. Is there enough for you to think about? Is there enough for you to look at, strategize, be ready for your next turn? And the second thing is game length. How long is this game now going to take when you have six players? Does it scale well? Whale. Does it scale well? I have found that very few board games are good at accommodating whales. Yes, it's so true. They play so slow. They don't scale well at all. So adding more players just tends to add more time. And that's the only two things I have. With it. The, I, I actually can think like? of a third, and that's meaningful player interaction with all players at the game. Ah, true enough. There are some games, and I'm not saying that this is a problem, but there are some games that accommodate large number of people by essentially hiving things off, and you either only interact with your neighbors or you only interact with a small subset of the people at the table. And that's okay, uh, but sometimes I sometimes wonder, why are we playing the seven-player game when we could be playing a three and a four, and I would actually be interacting with all the people at my table? So true. And they there's some things, I've got some quick things listed that helps them do these things. Giving every pe- people limited actions, like one action or two actions, they quickly do those and it moves on. Limited choices usually helps. A lot of these cases, it's a cooperative game, so you sort of like get to talk you know, together and you do things together. Or team-based. Or team-based. Team-based games are pretty common. And then there's simultaneous play, where everyone just takes their turn at the same time, everyone flips a card, does the little thing that it says, and then you're on to the next thing, and it keeps things moving. I think that the most successful games at high player counts that don't do any of those things, that have relatively meaningful, rich decisions and detailed interactions with everybody tend to do that by virtue of diplomacy and table talk, right? If my turns only come up once in a blue moon, but I'm involved in everyone else's turns, despite the fact there's no simultaneous play, I think you can often get away with lots uh with, with high player count games. Yeah, there's a game that uh, Dead of Winter does that in a weird way where they have that the story deck where you're, if someone does one specific thing during their turn... Then you get to reveal you have this card, so it's a you know a yeah. weird way to pe- keep people involved. But yeah, but I'm, and, and again, I've I've played Dead of Winter a handful of times, and the one time I played when those cards triggered all the time, I thought it was a great game, and the rest of the games I played, I thought it was terrible. Yeah, no, I, I have I have this aversion, and I, I'm not I'm not saying that Spirit Island is a deck milling game, but I, I have this <laughs> I, I have this just this awful aversion to any deck milling games i just i don't like that spirit mechanism. island is a deck milling game only if you're playing it like some I sort of random I'm, sort I'm of just, i'm just i'm just i'm 
pull in your wires, sir. Yes, yes. All right. Are. So, what do you want to start with, Mark? Well, why don't we start with saying that playing Spirit Island with six is a bad idea? Well, it is. <laughs> Some only... people do it. I don't know why. Is it? it? I know. I did. I actually looked it up. It said it's only one to four. Is there with a... the especially with, uh, with with there are a number of different sets of expansion materials where you can play it with six. Gotcha. Bad idea. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. That was the other thing too. Unfortunately, when you look at. Uh, Board game geeks. Some of these games do go up to higher player counts, but they only show what usually what the base game exactly gives you. So sometimes there's games I could have put in here, but wasn't 100 percent sure of. But well, anyway, do you want to start with other party or let's start with party games? I think most of these are going to come as no surprise to yeah. longtime listeners. That's what I have written here. These are what they were made to do. Right, it's to play with tons of players, keep the action moving because they know what they're doing. They keep it light and simple. Lots of table talk, lots and, of cross talk. Pretty well, just my favorite ones is what I've got listed yeah. here. Or I have social deduction games. They just, like, sort of fit into that total... See, it's weird. And this is actually going to be one of those things where this isn't really a categorization issue. This is more about how I approach the games. To me, some social deduction games feel like party games, and some social deduction games don't. And I think the dividing line could be I would be perfectly comfortable if you wanted to say that Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong were a party game. I think that that's kind of okay. I don't think that, say, the resistance necessarily belongs there as an example. Uh, I, but I'm not particularly devoted to this kind of division and certainly not necessarily that pairing. But uh, it's not the first place. I wouldn't necessarily slot the resistance in, in as a party game. Part of that is tone, but part of that is... No, yeah, and I don't want to sit here and define what a party game is. Like, I have Mysterium in here, and I'm sure people can... Yeah. Would argue that it's not a party game, but I I really... You know, it's very light, and I think it's a great game. Yeah, it's weird. Mysterium might be the only game that I can think of that I would be okay classifying as a party game where there's precious little talking because the ghost isn't allowed to talk, right? And... (laughs) A lot of people are just staring at their cards, desperately trying to make something out of it. But yeah, I would happily put Mysterium there. Mysterium is often a little too long, but I would still happily play it with six or more than six. Wonderful, wonderful game. And and it does have one of those aspects that I think is important for a good party game, which is anybody can sit down and start playing with very, very little explanation. That's definitely a good good thing to do. Because as we commented before, uh, as, as sort of an issue with games that are very specific with player counts... As the player count goes up, the burden of trying to find enough players to that can all get together and play the same game goes up as well. And party games, a good party game, almost anybody can find them. They tend to be inoffensive in the best way, not in the worst way, like a lot of bland euros. I also have Wits and Wages written here. I think it's, in my opinion, I think it is one of the best party games. Because a lot of people say, well, they're not good at trivia or they don't know a lot of things. Because you don't need to know anything in Wits and Wagers. You just need to know the person that does. Yeah. Right? You get to bet on their answers. It doesn't matter what you write. You can just say, well, I think he's right or it's closest to. And it's a, tons of fun. And I think it's just an overall really good game. Yeah, Wits and Wagers claims it is the trivia game for people who don't like trivia games. I hate trivia games so much I don't even like Wits and Wagers. Oh! I, it just doesn't do it for me. I don't... Um, It has the additional problem. Most of the time when I play a trivia game, there's a question that comes up and says... And it's either... First of all, you either know the answer or you don't. And and to their credit, especially Dominic Capuchette has been talking a lot about why Wits and Wagers is better than those things. Uh, so in Wits and Wagers, you don't... First of all, it doesn't matter whether you know it or not. But the the questions for Wits and Wagers, because they all have to be numeric, also strike me as especially painfully arbitrary and stupid and irrelevant. Uh, 
Like the extent to which the question comes up and my immediate answer is I literally could not care less is really frequent. And as a result, I don't even really care about the bidding. It's like I, 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 I get so dissociated from the experience. I just so do not care. Anyway, but that's just, that's just personal thing. Woods and Wagers is a very, very well-designed game, and it addresses a lot of those fundamental problems. But some of our other favorites, Cockroach Poker and Skull, two perennial games um, that work well with fewer, but top out at six and work very well with with six. Attribute is one of my favorite high-player count games. It's the word game by Marcel André Casasolamerco. It's really, really good. It's apples to apples that doesn't suck, which is uh, high praise. A game called Seven Card Slugfest, which is a real-time game in the Battlecon universe that is really stupid and I think is really fun. The game I'm missing the most lately, Mark, is Code Names. Yes, you know, having a big, you know, ten people standing around the table, smack talking the entire time, yelling and playing two, code names. Two Code Masters sitting at the other end of the table, giving each other meaningful looks and suffering. Oh yeah, I miss me some Code Names too. I haven't played. There's Miss Putin, which uh, makes me yearn for my homeland, which is mostly a game of shouting. And demanding a, a set of fries and a euro so you can complete the order. And the last one I have is Pictionary. I love the new big party edition that I got where you're passing around, drawing, and trying to figure out what on earth the person just handed you makes me laugh. My detestation for drawing is so potent, I, I can't even like Pictionary. <sighs> no, look, look, this is this is a personal failing on my... Right. I was the kid in kindergarten who didn't like arts and crafts. I... It's it's just it's just a thing. <laughs> the uh, the other great one that I miss is wavelength. Just oh yes, yeah. Wavelength. Oh, why didn't I? Oh, why didn't I write that? That's so good. Yep. Solid solid party games. I miss them all. All right, and that's party games. Super fun. There are terrible ones out there, but oh mostly yes, really good. All right, on to other. And in here, I have ones that work very well for this this. Uh, Theme would be uh, some. Uh, sorry, no racing games and card games. Really, racing games. Some racing games I think work really like like, like, like which Camel ones? Up and Formula Day. Really, I find like I think Formula Day, uh, in the end, is too long. Yes, but I think I think the first time people play it, it's not too bad. When, like on return trips, yes, they it gets a little tedious, but on their first play. It, it seems, you know, sort of exciting and, and down to the wire. But then once you, you know, understand how it works, it does get on to tedium. But I find Formula Day and to a certain extent also Thunder Alley by Jeff Horger, who is a designer I really like. Uh, but they're just uh, the moment the player count starts rising. It's, it's a natural impulse, right? You want a crowded field. It makes it look more like a race. But then they just get so long. And the downtime is so crippling. I just not interested. Well, as long as you keep the whip on them, it usually goes pretty quick. <sighs> mm-hmm. Not quick enough. All right. I know we don't like Seven Wonders, but it just it does work well. Hands down, simultaneous play. It's not the greatest in this in this bracket, but it does it does what it does. Well, that's that's another classic example, though, of if you've got seven people around a table. Not only would I rather break into three and four by virtue of the fact that I hate Seven Wonders and I don't think it's a good game, I think it's the one asterisk in Antoine Bouza's otherwise remarkable career of excellent games. But why would I want to play a seven-player game when I'm not dealing with anyone other than my two neighbors? It it seems to defy the purpose. So that's what I mean. Just like just like roll and write games, you know, we can put roll and write games in here. You can play roll and write games with any number of people, but true. who cares? You're not interacting with them at all. It's so true. That's one actually I meant to. I meant to type in, but didn't look. Is uh, to the limit how many players that is? I bet you that's over six, and it works great with multiple players. Yet yeah, another think, simultaneous play. I think to the which limit Karuba, is. 
Krub only goes up to four, which I found odd. Anyway, moving on. Colt Express, another one simultaneous play. Works really good with multiple people. Between Two Cities. These are all under simultaneous play. Between between Two Cities. Mm. It all happens at the same time. Sure. You're worried about the person on the left or right. It's not the greatest of games. I'm not saying these are fantastic games. I'm just saying they work at high player count. Sure, but why don't we focus on the good ones, Walker? Okay. City of Horror, then. Yes. Yes. So this is... So diplomacy games, games of negotiation, games of haggling, a lot of them can work really, really well with six players or even more. City of Horror, I think, is a great underrated negotiation game. It's probably my favorite zombie game. That and Flick 'em Up Dead of Winter are my two favorite zombie games. Uh, similarly... Chicken Caesar. Chicken Caesar is not at its best with six because at six it gets a little fragile. Uh, you can get um, kind of sidelined a little bit if things don't if if you're not careful in the early rounds. But with that proviso, it's a great de- negotiation game and you can play it with six. And then there are the uh, negotiation or dealing games that work with more than six, like for example, Citadel Confluence, trading and negotiation in the Elysium Quadrant, which works great with four all the way to nine. Yes. And it is a fabulous design. Appreciate it all with a sense of refinement and sophistication. I have it written down here for the same thing. Do you? Well, it works well at the player count, regardless of the fact that I don't like it. You don't have to take it it on the chin. It works well at that player count. (laughs) It really does. Do what else works well at that player count? Scythe. I find Scythe works great. You take your one action. You do it while you're fiddling around with your second action. The next player is moving. If you have a table of people that know how to play, it moves along at a great clip. Actually, works not only well it works great i feel i wouldn't go that far i think it's i think it's borderline uh i would i will happily play size size of the six but i think it is much better with three four or five and then i had a game called dust that was a fantastic six player game had a little bit of map problems but other than that it was very interesting doesn't your favorite troops on a map game also go up to six doesn't uh, level seven invasion it does not oh that's too bad it was only five Imperial games, Mark, they go up to six. Yeah, absolutely. As does, think, as does Antica. And I think they all work very well at that number. Antica and Imperial are higher pace than Scythe. And I think those are good examples of games that thrive at six. Especially since in the context of Imperial, everything that happens on the table probably affects your portfolio. And so you have to be very careful about all of this. And I frequently bust out Antico with six, and people are amazed at how quickly it goes and how, how well it works. And I think the new Eclipse Second Edition would work all right with six. I think that the downtime would be a little high, but I think there's enough going on with uh, looking at what techs are out there and how you want to manipulate your ships. And there's enough for you to do by the time it comes back to your turn and the turns of that. Your actions are that small that I think it moves around in a great clip. One of the options of first edition Eclipse that was in one of the expansions that has not yet been ported to second edition, but which could easily be proxied, was the simultaneous action selection mechanism, whereby two players would take their turns at the same time. You had two action pawns that would go around the table. And it worked surprisingly well. I played a number of six-player games of Eclipse in the first edition. And yeah, it moved along at a reasonable pace. Yeah, I have this. I have that written in here to ask you whether they ported that into second. Edition. Not yet. That's odd, because like you said, it did work so well. Quartermaster General, we both love it. Works great at six. Team-based game, yeah. Small World, I think, is not terrible. Whoa, no, hard pass. <laughs> hard pass. Hard pass. No, no, no. Small World at four is already too much downtime for me. I w- I'll play it with four, but at five, it it, it moves along the crawl. At six, that's slow torture. Ah, if people that know what the powers do, you you 
you take your armies. You it is a no luck, perfect information game where you want to calculate a marginal gain of one or two points every time you plot a new invasion, and there's no player interaction during a given player's turn. No, no. All right, definitely uh, not. If not for you. I really like small. For someone else. I really like small world. Oh come on, don't pull that. <laughs> that is the worst of all possible <laughs> cop outs. What, Mark, why didn't you say in your opinion, Mark? Why are you trying to present us like some mathematics? In your opinion, Mark. Shut up. All right. <coughs> no, I think it's like uh, you only have to roll the die once. You only get to do it in the last of your turns. You literally, you know what you're doing at the beginning of your turn. Uh, if you're going to, you know, go into retirement or quickly pick up your pieces and invade here, here, and here, and here. Like you said, there's no luck. There's no dice rolling. You just do your actions, and then it's the next player's turn. Hard pass. And that is Small World. If you and four people want to invite me to a game of Small World, I will be off doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> so other team-based games uh, that get by with, uh, with, with with strong team elements are Space Cadets Dice Duel. It goes up to really high player counts. Uh, I, eight is still really solid. Ten is doable, although at that point you start wobbling a little bit on some of the rolls, but you can absolutely do it that way. Guards of Atlantis, probably my favorite large player count game. Uh, I would be hard-pressed to think of another game that goes up to 8 or 10 that smoothly with that much quality decision-making and that little downtime and that much quality team play. It is probably my favorite team-based game, period. And the fact that the the, the counts can go from 4 all the way up to 8 or 10 is definitely uh, a triumph. There are um, Cosmic Encounter, I think. If you're going to play with 6, you probably want to play with some team-based variant. Uh, because otherwise the downtime does tend to get a little bit high. And yeah, you're involved in everyone else's turns, theoretically, because of alliances and such, but eh. I always tend to play games that are fun instead. And I'm going to close out with uh, play or draw. Play or draw. <laughs> oh! Play or draw. Ethnos, yes. Ethnos works so good at six. You're right. I, I Especially I, if you're willing to chant at the appropriate times. I really feel it is one of the very most underrated games that are out there. I would agree with you, except for the fact that whenever anyone starts talking about underrated games, people always start mentioning it. <laughs> so yeah, no, you're right. It is it is underappreciated in part because Simon let it go out of print very quickly. It's honest, kind it's, of, it's of. exactly the same designer as Dogs of War, which is exactly the same problem. Yes. Paolo Mori is... I, I think Paolo Mori, I think, is one of the most underrated designers working today. Uh, he, along with some of the other more recognized Italians like Daniela Tascini and Simone Luciani, are absolutely great designers that are putting out tremendous quality and quantity of work. And it's a shame that Dogs of War... Uh, well, Dogs of War kind of lives on in Blitzkrieg, but... Then there are other games that I think uh, get by at uh, topping out at six that rely on the fact that you're dealing primarily with other people at the table. I'm thinking of the two most recent Jim Felly designs. Cosmic Frog, I think, works very well with six, whether or not you play with teams, be prim primarily because of the great chip pull system and how fast it works and because you get to be a Cosmic Frog. And Door of the Lesser Houses is best at six. You just have a full table of people to slander and cast aspersions on and, and, and have machinations. And like you said, because you talked about the action system, drawing the cards, Spheres of Influence does the exact same thing. Spheres of Influence is the, where you're drawing cards off the top of the deck. It's a very risk-like game. I still have it on my shelf. It works very well at high player counts for the I same reason. haven't played at that, uh, that level, so I can't really comment on how fast it moves. Uh, my favorite game, though, at six players is probably Senji. 
I absolutely adore Senji. Senji manages to get the uh, simultaneous play element through hefty doses of diplomacy and being able to trade with other players. Sometimes, depending on when you catch me, I might say that I prefer Senji with five, but there's no question that it's six. It works marvelously, and it's kind of sort of designed for six. Once you get down to five, you have to introduce another another system to do it. But uh, also, tragically, out of print, and by a kind of underrated design team of uh, Bruno Catala and Serge Laget, who haven't really been at the forefront lately, but it's an absolutely wonderful game, and I recommend it categorically. There's also Tribune with the expansion, which is my favorite worker placement game. It's not at its best with six, but it works with six in a reasonably good way. And it's worker placement, so it turns work along the great clip. And finally, Swag favorite, Hyperborea. Hyperborea also, the downtime starts to get a little bad. Uh, I think, for me, it's in the same category as Scythe. Kind of borderline and best if everyone knows what they're doing. But I have such an enthusiasm for Hyperborea that I'd be willing to play it. It's true, because it's so hard to find a game that's good at six. So even though sometimes when it breaks some of those three rules that we talked about at the beginning, you still push your way through because it's hard to find a game at that player. You're willing to do a little bit of compromise and... Despite the, and as I said, you don't always feel like if you're playing a six player game, it's like, well, why don't we break into three? So there are social reasons, there are space reasons, there are all kinds of reasons not to do that. So. All right. So that was our other category. Oh, now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not. Oh, sorry. I thought you said finally. Sorry, Mark. Oh, sorry. I was thinking even finally because then, then to me, there's the social deduction games that I like, which are, are great at six plus. Uh, the resistance, the menace among us and bloodbound. Those are probably my three favorite social deduction games with the heavy, heavy favorite for the resistance. One of my favorite games of all time. Really, really, really quality player interaction at all times. Uh, the Menace Among Us is uh, pretty light and not nearly as robust, but I, I find it charming. And it's got some lovely little moments of confrontation and violence. And uh, Bloodbound, which used to have the virtue of probably being the game that I liked with the absolute worst artwork. It was so bad that it was actually part of the fun, making fun of the artwork. It was it was as bad as Cosmic Frog's art is good. Cosmic Frog art, you look at it, oh, this is so great. I can't wait for everyone to see this. Bloodbound, you look at the card and say, I'm so ashamed that this is the card nominally yeah. representing me. Let us, I had to put this on my shelf. Let us, let us never speak of this again. Sadly, they reissued it with better art, which kind of ruins it, but anyway. I highly recommend those social deduction games, and they all work very, very well at very high player counts, so. Now on to the other one that boots another of our rules right at the table, punts it out of the stadium, <laughs> which is game length. So these are games that just, you know, are going to take all day, but you don't care. Event gaming is how of, I kind yeah, of think event of it. Yeah. Games. yeah, true enough. Mark will hate two of these that I've got. So I have just, no doubt. Let's just get them out of the way. Twilight Imperium I knew, 4. Yeah, I knew it was an inevitability. It was inevitable. It was an inevitability that you were going to drop that turd onto this <laughs> podcast again. <laughs> Twilight Imperium is the turd in the Swag Punch Bowl. And now, with this announced expansion, it'll just be that much better. Oh, because it goes to eight now, right? Exactly. Eight <laughs> players. Gigantic. Now we'll have, you know, even the tanks were cool, but now it's going to have mechs. Which I've frequently thought cooler. that when you have a game that's over long and hinges too much on weird player order interactions, that the best way to deal with the player order problems is just to put two more people at the table. Exactly. And introduce an entire political system that you have to vote vote laws in and out of play because that really cuts down on playtime. <laughs> Twilight Imperium 4. By I'm, laws, you mean take that cards, right? 
Yes. Okay. No, Just no, the, the, sure. well, but that, no, there are laws. Remember the whole political system. You yeah, they take that cards. Oh, yes, true enough. We're going to uh, pass uh, a law that says you can have war sons. Oh, congratulations, faction that relies on war sons. True. I thought you were talking about. Thanks the, for showing up. Have I, a nice game. I thought you were talking about the fantastic action cards. That oh, the action cards are worse. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the political cards masquerading. At, look, when we're talking about a game of politics, when you're talking about a game of deal making, we, we, we can talk about games that we both like. For, like, for example, City of Horror. There, there's actual politics and deal making rather than I have this take that card vote to implement it that's a little different it's true and the second one you're going to hate is game of thrones yeah i just really love game of thrones it sort of uses uh some of the diplomacy mechanics where it's just you know straight up numbers right it's like i have you know you can look at the board he's pushing with two i have four you know you mix it up a little bit with cards but yeah. it's, it's it's very it's very that the combat part is is not going to throw you off. You know what I mean? You're going to sort of understand how it's going to work. You can see what cards people have left. And then there is a, a little bit of negotiation. And I just, I just like the whole system because I like the world that it's in. I like the fact that you always, you know, beat down the Lannisters because everyone hates them. And, and hopefully there's one player at the table that doesn't know the world and you sort of talk them into taking red. And then they- <laughs> And then, and, then, and then they don't understand why everyone's attacking them and why no one will ever trust them. And it's it's just overall, usually, I've never, I've only had one bad game of Game of Thrones. Other than that, I can't wait. I have this nice big neoprene mat, and I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the day that I get to play a nice big game. Plan, plan a game day where you and five people who are not me play Small World. And <laughs> sorry, did I, and then the Game of Thrones. Sorry, I I, I meant to say Game Week. Game Week, <laughs> yes. I, the first time I ever played Game of Thrones, actually, was before I had read the books. This was long before the TV series came out. And I just took Yellow because I normally play as Yellow. And even before I knew anything about the universe, I learned to hate the Lannisters. <laughs> 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 because I was playing as the Baratheons, and so naturally enough. Anyway, uh, any other all-day games you got? For... Oh, yeah. I've got ones that you will... That, you'll that, that might be more sympathetic that, to? That you'll, that you'll like. Any civ- giant civilization game. 100%. They are a fantastic sort of sit down and sort of reenact the birth of the world and how how us as humanity spread across like a plague and destroyed it. <laughs> yep. It's, uh, it is a game of population pressures, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's always a great time. Yeah, any version of Civ that is not advanced Civ, so I'll play uh, Civ with or without the Western Expansion map, or Mega Civ, uh, more than happy to do. And those are very, very good games. Civ is best, widely regarded as best at seven. And some people will say they will not play it with four or five. I'm not one of those players. I've had very, very, very good games at four or five. Uh, and of course, Mega Civ, you need five to even get off the ground. And they recommend, uh, they, they would rather you play with at least double digits. <laughs> and they only have one other here. And I haven't been able to play it yet, so I don't want to really talk about it, but still War Room. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to finally trying it. It is, it is the, the opus of, of Axon Allies designer, and I've heard nothing but good things, so I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it. Cause it has the, it has that, the diplomacy part where you're, everyone's writing their orders ahead of time, and, and it's all displayed out, and it's like sort of hidden movement, so I can't wait to see how that plays out in a World War II setting. And it has pushy sticks. It has, we got the, the, the deluxe version with pushy sticks. And I, I want to make an event of it where we all wear, the, you know, the army hats of, of the. I of don't the... think we should, send, I agree with you that that sounds cool, except for the minor problem of Nazi cosplay. It's true. Let's, so let's, let's shelve that idea. 
Well, we we can go back a little bit, and it could be very, very early World War II, where they have World War One hats on. How's that? <laughs> then you still have like fa- fascist Franco cosplay. It's I true. look, their uniforms were very cool and should never be worn again. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't mention actual diplomacy. I, oh, yeah, I had it here. I, Best at seven, pretty much unplayable at any other number. Well, that's that's with the little bit of mix-up, that's why it wasn't there. It, okay. It's best at seven. I thought we were just doing exactly six. I don't know why I thought that. I had meant to send sure. a message asking if it was six plus, but never got around to it. But anyway, that I digress. Uh, yes, Diplomacy is a definitely all-day fantastic game. I have a couple of additions to your excellent list, your first two entrants notwithstanding. And that is La Révolution Française, La Papine Banger, which is a six-player, again, politics and diplomacy and negotiation and factionalism. So it benefits from the, the, the additional players, and it is going to take you all day, and it's going to be glorious. And then there is the GMT standby Here I Stand, which is the Wars of the Reformation. Also, best with six, very clearly delineated, defined goals, a very interesting diplomacy system. The only fault I have against Here I Stand, and it again is, is, is exacerbated by the fact that it takes all day, is the silly Haley's Planet card, where, uh, you're fighting this, this, this very, very tight game. And then suddenly at the end of, of near the end of the game, someone's looking at a card and saying, this card just gives me two points for no reason. What? That's, <laughs> I, I actually just a, a brief shout out to Chris Farrell, who's one of my favorite board game critics. He pointed out, he did an analysis of GMT result, uh, GMT releases of around that time. And he couldn't help but notice that all of them came with precisely 110 cards. Just a whole bunch of different games at different levels, periods, playtimes, player counts. Just a whole bunch of radically different games all came with exactly 110 cards. And he asked the simple question. We can believe one of two things. Either, number one, exogenously, by happenstance, all these different designers and development teams happened to stumble upon this magical number of good cards in a game... Or, conversely, GMT prints decks out at 110 cards a pop and tells them to fill the sheets. Exactly. The sheets count in at exactly... Yeah. And if the second thing is true, then what does that tell us about the relative merits of these card-driven <laughs> games when a lot of these cards might not... like it's, it's worse than the Kickstarter problem in a very serious way because it's just like you have a quota, fill the quota. Now, maybe in an ideal world, the designer had 130 brilliant cards and pared down. I was about to say, I think in most cases it's probably pared down as opposed to filled uh, in. I don't know, man. It's always easy to do what less less sheets. Like, I don't think, you know what I mean? I don't know, man. I, I hope that's true. And Ed Beach is a wonderful designer. And I'm not, I'm not making any specific claims about any specific people. I'm just saying it's a bit of a worrisome pattern. And so sometimes I look at games of that era, especially GMT games of that era that are card-driven, and I wonder... Was this an event that the designer really wanted to be there? Or is this an event that got shoved in? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> and lastly, for me, I just, I was kind of blown away about, like, when I was looking up what, what people thought great six plus player games were. And some of the things that came up, I was like blown away. The one that came up the majority of the time that I thought it was Robo Rally. Oh boy. And I think I'd rather take a, flamethrower to the table than play Robo Rally with six or more players. You need, when you're playing Robo Rally, you need lots of people though, because I think the appeal of Robo Rally is seeing wild things happen. And you're not going to see a whole bunch of wild things happen if you're just playing with two or three. Then you're just 
methodically plotting out moves and then I didn't pull the card I need so I can't go where I want to. You want to see people push. You want to see lasers hitting people randomly and all that other stuff. So I, I don't think it's a good game, but I, I understand why people want to play it at high player counts. Battlestar Galactica also came up. Don't play that. Yeah. And that's going to do it for us. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great. But having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.